Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And today I'm joined by Dr. Herbert Loom. Dr. Liu holds joint appointments as Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Clinical Oncology and Deputy Medical Director of the Phase One Clinical Trial Center of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He's established himself as an expert in drug development, thoracic oncology. He's also the current and founding convener of the Prince of Wales Hospital Adult Sarcoma Multidisciplinary Team. Herbert, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Steve. In this episode, we're going to focus on NTRAC, or neurotrophic tyrosine receptor kinase. Herbert, for our audience here, what is NTRAC, and how is that relevant to lung cancer? Thanks, Steve, and that's a wonderful question. NTRAC, and as you've already defined as the title of um, neurotrophic tyrosine kinase, is definitely something that is being studied and has been studied for some years. But it's interestingly enough that it's only in the recent, oh, I say probably about six or seven years that we've identified it as a potential targetable uh, alteration in a variety of cancers. And uh, certainly it's a relatively rare fusion uh, that's been seen in a variety of cancers. And there are some cancers where it's uh, almost pathognomonic of. And yet for the common cancers that we do see in our routine clinical practice, it generally accounts for a relatively uh, small uh, number of patients. Overall, though, the presence of having these NTRAC fusions essentially are uh, pathogenic and uh, targeting uh, these specific uh, alterations have been shown to be effective in uh, controlling cancer. So I guess in terms of uh, NTRAC, uh, one of the biggest difficulties is identification of these patients or identifications of these tumors in these patients. And there are, as I've mentioned previously, uh, some cancers where uh, NTRAC fusions are almost pathognomonic and more than 90%. And that are cancers uh, which we do not see routinely in clinical practice, but uh, cancers such as a breast secretory carcinoma or infantile fibrosarcoma, the presence of NTRAC is almost uh, universal. Since, of course, this is the IASLC uh, podcast and we are really focusing on lung cancer, and NTRAC essentially accounts for about 1% to 2% uh, at most of uh, all lung cancer um, that's seen around the world. Now, Herbert, you mentioned NTRAC fusion. And so it's a little different. We're not looking at mutations. We're looking at fusions. Can you talk to us a bit about how we find these rare events or maybe more specifically, how do you find them at your institution? That's right. So uh, we're specifically looking at fusions. And in general, fusions are identified really only by uh, methods of, or confirmed at least, by methods of uh, next-generation sequencing. It's important to note that mutations uh, during the course of the development of these potentially actionable drugs uh, have been investigated, but unfortunately, it did not show much efficacy. But it's only in patients who harbor tumors with fusions. Now, you do require a a next-generation sequencing test to really confirm the presence of these uh, fusions. Having said that, though, there have been developments of various immunohistochemical tests as screening procedures, and NTRAC is actually separated into NTRAC 1, NTRAC 2, and NTRAC 3. And there is now, I believe, uh, different institutions running a variety of immunohistochemical stains or even cocktail stains, which would be able to highlight and screen for these patients and then be able to funnel these potential samples for a confirmatory NGS test, uh, which actually helps the identification. 
Hmm. Now, uh, at my institution, I really try to use both DNA and RNA. I know that NTRAC3 has large intronic regions and and that RNA sequencing really helps uh, uh, splice those out. And I feel like it's a little more sensitive, uh, but it's not available at all places. Is next-gen sequencing something that's freely available in, in Hong Kong right now? Yeah, so um, you've met, I, mean, I think that's absolutely right. So I think the issue is next-generation sequencing itself is not freely available as part of a government reimbursement plan. Having said that, because of its importance in NTREC, as well as now other potentially actionable mutations, we do have various clinical trials uh, as well as essentially preclinical studies uh, or epidemiological studies uh, involving our current lung cancer patient population. So in essence, uh, although it's not reimbursed by the government, we are able to provide three, uh, free NGS testing, which includes both a DNA as well as an RNA fusion platform to potentially eligible patients. We certainly have access to the various commercial uh, entities which do uh, run these tests internationally, as well as the use of liquid biopsies. Now, these events are particularly important now because we have drugs approved to target them. And in fact, we have two agents now approved for NTRAC positive cancers. The first to hit the market here was larotrectinib, formerly LOXO-101. This received FDA-accelerated approval in November 2018. Herbert, can you tell us a little bit about that drug? Sure. So that is the first drug that has been approved uh, in uh, the treatment of um, NTRAC uh, fusion-positive tumors. And certainly it's a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, which has shown uh, good efficacy across various tumor types harboring NTRAC fusions. Now, the trial or uh, the data that actually led to its approval is actually an accumulation of various trials, including phase one trials in adults, as well as a phase one stroke 2 trial in the pediatric group, as well as a basket navigate trial, a phase 2 trial essentially in young adults and adolescents, uh, as well as adults as well. And essentially, it has shown uh, very good efficacy with a uh, objective response rate of up to about 71%, uh, irrespective of tumor type or gene type, i.e. NTREC1 to a free fusion uh, in patients. And more importantly, it's also in the uh, analysis have identified a subset of patients, about 14 of these patients actually had brain metastases, which showed equally good uh, response rates as well. And we're talking very high response rates. These are impressive waterfall plots. It's a drug that that really works across tumor types. Is this drug available in Hong Kong? Yes. So uh, the drug is available in Hong Kong. However, it is not reimbursed by the government at the moment. So because of that, uh, we do have various uh, channels of accessing this drug, including previously uh, it was available on an expanded access program. So patients were able to uh, access these drugs for free. At the same time, though, in Hong Kong, uh, the uh, Star Trek 2 trial is currently still running. Uh, so for patients with newly identified Trek fusions, we do have the other agents available, which uh, because of a clinical trial, again, it is. Uh, free to the patients. Now, Star Trek. Originally, that acronym stood for uh, Study Targeting ALK, ROS, and NTRAC. And I know that um, uh, that abbreviation changed a, a little bit, but I thought that was a very clever group of trials, Star Trek 1, Star Trek 2, and then the pediatric study, Star Trek Next Generation. You're referring to Entrectinib, or RxDx101. Uh, that's the second drug. It received accelerated approval by the FDA in August 2019, and that's a drug that you were directly involved in. Can you tell us a little bit about that drug? Sure. Um, so 
essentially entrectinib is also a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It's different from larentrectinib in the sense that it was uh, designed or at least had preclinical uh, as well as some clinical activity in uh, not only uh, TREC fusions, uh, but as well as uh, ALK uh, as well, and uh, ROS1. I have been involved in this trial as the local principal investigator at my institution. And certainly uh, in terms of um, clinical sort of experience, I do have uh, clinical experience of entrectinib and less so of larotrectinib. Within the clinical trial itself, uh, we have uh, participated and uh, encouraged our patients to join, and uh, including patients with NTREC fusions, as well as patients who had uh, ROS1 uh, fusions uh, in their lung cancers as well. It's interesting, uh, as part of uh, running this trial in Hong Kong, uh, another part that we have uh, improved upon in our clinical care was the uh, establishment of a local screening program. And it was really the impetus of trying to identify patients for this clinical trial that we have managed to uh, start up our own in-house small panel at that point, uh, RNA sequencing. And actually, uh, over a course of two years, we were able to screen over uh, 280 patients. And with that, we were able to identify three patients who were otherwise not be able to be identified to join the clinical trial and develop a clinical response. So it goes back to uh, our original notion of the presence of having NTREC fusions in about 1% of uh, the common cancers. And that certainly works out to be about 1% because we identified uh, three patients out of 280. Now, I, I've been extremely impressed with with the development of both of these drugs. They're very effective responses, really reliable, um, some very durable and deep responses. What do we know about their safety? Mm, that's very interesting. Um, yes. So, I mean, in in essence, I think these are uh, small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And in terms of safety, the safety profile is in general uh, relatively acceptable. They do have particularly interesting adverse events, which may be not commonly seen in some of our other tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And it's very interesting that uh, actually, I believe uh, our colleague uh, Alex Drillin in the Annals of uh, Oncology published uh, his review on the use of TREC inhibitors. And he's actually uh, taken the liberty of comparing the side effect profile of entrectinib and larotrectinib together with a drug that we commonly use in the lung cancer community, which is crizotinib. And what he has shown uh, very nicely and graphically was the fact that we do see actually a very good safety profile in terms of some of the worrying safeties that we see, including, say, nausea, constipation, diarrhea, or um, uh, transaminitis. But at the same time, it does have specific neurologic or on-target effects, uh, which are not common in some of the other uh, drugs that we use, including, say, dizziness or weight gain, as well as paresthesia. So I think it's important to note that the safety profiles are generally acceptable, but they are somewhat different. And some of these, including, say, uh, cognition issues, may not be readily uh, noticeable or recognized by the patients. And I think it's important that the uh, patient's caregivers are also aware of these side effects so that uh, they can report them to the uh, clinician uh, at a timely uh, fashion. Yeah, the, the NTRAC signaling is, is really important for proprioception, for nociception. And, and so you're right. I think these toxicities are, are unique. The, the role NTRAC plays in appetite really leads to that weight gain. It's not edema. It's, you know, like chrysotinib. It's, it's really just polyphagia. It's eating. It's appetite. And the, the neurotoxicity, I haven't seen a lot of cognitive effects, but, uh, definitely, you know, you can see dizziness, the ataxia. And I think the, the key Herbert, as you mentioned, it's recognition. And understanding that if you develop these toxicities and, and they're significant, 
that it responds well to dose reduction. I mean, has that been your experience? Yes, it does respond quite well to dose reduction. And I think it's interesting how we have a drug where appetite gain and weight gain itself is an adverse event. And um, certainly, um, you know, by when we were treating our clinical trial patients, a lot of them have had uh, their NTRAC fusions identified quite late uh, in their disease, and they were already quite ill and uh, relatively sick from the disease. And certainly seeing the weight gain initially was very encouraging, and the patient was very encouraged. But uh, to a certain extent, uh, after a while, it's gone beyond what their baseline was and what they wanted. And then you realize that in actual fact, it's a adverse event. So um, it, it's quite interesting. That's all. Now, in practice now, when these drugs are available, are you comfortable using these oral drugs as first-line therapy? I think I am. Uh, I think, um, you know, the, the biggest difficulty is identification of these patients. But once we have identified the presence of an intrinsic fusion, I, I would not be reluctant to prescribe these at that instance. And if that means that the patients were identified quite early on before they started any treatment, I'm quite happy with uh, going ahead with them. Now, they're, they're competing in the frontline space, really, with the other exciting development in lung cancer, and that's immunotherapy. Do we know anything about immunotherapy in this subtype? I think the data is still being generated at the moment. But um, from my understanding, and, and, and Steve, do, do chime in uh, from your point of view as well, is uh, there seems to be some correlation between patients uh, with tumors which harbor NTRAC fusion, as well as the possibility of having a TMB high or a MSI high status in their tumors. Uh, certainly, I'm aware that it is uh, it has been reported in colorectal cancer. And uh, I believe there are similar data for lung cancer as well. Is that correct? You know, I, I agree that the data is still pretty early and the, these are rare events and, and it's rare to really have, have direct comparisons. I'm with you. I, I favor the targeted approach first. Uh, I think immunotherapy could play a role, but I really would want to exhaust my targeted options pretty similar to other, other targeted paradigms. And, you know, on, on that note, do we know anything about resistance to these drugs? Because while the responses are, are quite durable for many, um, not for everyone, do we know anything about uh, resistant to these first-generation NTRAC inhibitors? Are there new drugs in development? Yeah, so I think, you know, the science really is moving forward very quickly. And uh, certainly we do believe that well, our experience in the clinical trials as well as in our uh, patients that we are seeing the potential of having resistance to these first-generation TREC inhibitors. And uh, certainly there can be acquired TREC kinase domain mutations, and they have uh, actually now uh, second generation TREC inhibitors, uh, including, say, uh, selatrectinib or Loxo-195, uh, as well as the uh, turning point compound, which specifically addresses these solvent front mutations. And uh, actually, I believe in the uh, early reports of the phase one clinical trials of both of these agents, we are seeing uh, favorable activity. Now, it's important to note, though, that uh, the resistance to NTREC uh, inhibitors, at least the first generation, uh, about half of them are potentially uh, because of uh, solvent front or uh, gatekeeper mutations. But there could also be because of bypass uh, pathways. And in such situations, in actual fact, uh, the use of these second generation alk inhibitors 
inhibitors, uh, sorry, not ALK inhibitors, but TREK inhibitors uh, may not be efficacious. So I think it's important uh, later on uh, that uh, when we do run into situations where there are resistance to consider doing a rebiopsy uh, or at least a liquid biopsy to identify the resistant mechanism and then to see whether or not we could channel our patients to uh, appropriate treatments, be it a second generation TREK inhibitor or potentially addressing some of the other potential mechanisms. Some of the bypass mechanisms are in actual fact very familiar to us in terms of our treatments of other cancers as well as lung cancer. So I believe that having patients identified as having, say, the presence of KRAS mutations, MET amplifications, BRAF mutations, uh, as well as IGF-1R activations, and certainly with other targetable uh, or actionable agents that we have in our uh, armamentarium, there is a potential for us to consider uh, the use of uh, TREK inhibitors uh, in conjunction with some of these other targeted treatments. And I believe we need clinical trials to validate this sort of approach. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. I agree completely. The the turning point compound that you mentioned, TPX005 or repitrectinib, that does have FDA breakthrough designation and really one of three uh, such designations for NTRAC previously treated uh, positive tumors. And I agree that if I saw on rebiopsy a non-TRAC dependent mechanism of resistance, it might look elsewhere. Uh, maybe not really worth exploring those targeted drugs, uh, though it'll be hard to validate that, that really prospectively. Yeah. So this is clearly an, an important target. And I, I think it's good to hear that we have multiple agents available now and in development. As you mentioned, we have effective drugs, but we can only employ them when we find these alterations. So NTRAC is a tumor agnostic uh, approval. We need to look for these. And when we do, we have uh, drugs available now and we have drugs available down the line. An interesting aspect is that tumor agnostic nature. You know, we see NTRAC fusions in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, but we also see them in other tumors uh, such as sarcoma. Now, those happen to be two tumor types that you yourself specialize in, which brings me to, to what I think is a very pressing question of why. You know, it's not a common combination. <laughs> I see, so I see a lot of lung and head and neck. I see lung and esophageal, but lung and sarcoma, really, apart from you and, and, you know, Dr. Lana Zara, I don't know a lot of others with that same clinical focus. How did you get there, Herbert? Uh, it, that, that's a wonderful question, and it's great that you've also mentioned our colleague Alona there. And uh, certainly, actually, Alona and I were both fellows at the Princess Margaret uh, earlier in uh, in the in earlier this decade. I'm not going to mention exactly which year because that <laughs> makes me feel really old. But I mean, my own personal story is, you know, I, I I was brought up and trained in Hong Kong. I did my med school in Hong Kong. I did my medical oncology training in Hong Kong. But then uh, subsequently, I did a uh, one-year fellowship program at the Princess Margaret, specifically looking at uh, drug development. And at the same time, since I was going to be abroad for a year, I figured it was important for us to um, accumulate some new skills aside from uh, drug development and, say, uh, experimental therapeutics. The sarcoma uh, sort of work in Hong Kong uh, has always been there, but has been relatively haphazard. And uh, we haven't really had a dedicated academic uh, who specialize in this field of disease. Uh, so uh, therefore, I took the leap. Uh, and since nobody else was doing it, I figured this would be something worth um, uh, involving myself into. 
the truth be told, when I was at the Princess Margaret doing my fellowship, I did sarcoma as well as um, uh, neuro oncology uh, and uh, drug development. And my interest in thoracic oncology really only started after returning from Toronto uh, back to Hong Kong, where uh, I continued to work at uh, the Chinese University of Hong Kong at Prince of Wales Hospital. And certainly our department chairman, uh, Professor Tony Mock, uh, has been very encouraging in terms of uh, my interests and uh, more like well, essentially channeled me into doing uh, lung cancer. And I'm very interested in uh, thoracic oncology, especially in the um, early phase drug development setting. So that's how I got involved in both thoracic oncology uh, as well as sarcomas. Well, I mean, those are a couple of really storied programs, some really great mentors. Having trained in, in two different parts of the world, can you contrast for us being an oncologist, being uh, a clinical investigator in Hong Kong versus Canada? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. There's a lot of similarity. And certainly, I think there are possibly more similarities between, say, Canada and Hong Kong than uh, the United States and Hong Kong. I think mainly because of the healthcare system, per se. Um, in Hong Kong, I work in the public institution, and the way we practice healthcare is very similar to, say, the National Health Service in the UK, uh, where there is accessibility for all patients, and in general, most of the things are covered for free, or at least at a minimal cost. Now, having said that, in terms of training or clinical practice, I do believe there is some differences, though. Certainly, in Canada, they follow the North American approach in terms of training, and I feel that it is very structured, uh, and um, and I think there are a lot more protected time, at least for a fellow, in North America uh, than in Hong Kong, where essentially our training is structured per se, but possibly once you finish your medical oncology training, if you want to go into a subspecialty, the training is relatively haphazard, and a lot of times you get thrown into the deep end. I think there are advantages in both uh, methods of training. And certainly for my purposes, uh, going to Canada uh, for that one year to specifically learn about experimental therapeutics, I think I needed that sort of training environment in order for me to learn. But coming back to Hong Kong as well, I think being thrown in the deep end previously has allowed me to really see a big spectrum of diseases. And certainly, for example, even now, um, although I am a thoracic stroke sarcoma oncologist in my clinic, I would occasionally see the patients with breast cancer or prostate cancer. And certainly, in actual fact, our clinic is a mixed clinic. It's a mixed chemotherapy clinic where all different types of cancers are being seen at the same clinic in the same setting by the same group of doctors. So I guess it also helps me as a phase one investigator because it also means that in my own clinic, I will have the opportunity to see patients of other cancers as well. And now that we have various actionable mutations, which are spanning throughout different histologies, it may actually help uh, patients accrual uh, practically in terms of the uh, clinical trials, as well as just keeping me in tune with what's going on in terms of other cancers as well. Because, you know, if, if you're specifically only looking at sarcoma or, or, or thoracic oncology, I, honestly, I, I probably wouldn't know what to do with a breast cancer patient. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, your, your group clearly knows what it's doing. Your team won the ISLC Cancer Care Team Award at the World Conference on Lung Cancer in 2018. Can you tell us a little bit about why that award was so important? Yeah, that was actually a very important award to us. And I think we're still very proud of being able to, to be awarded uh, with that. And I think the main reason behind it is this is an award which were, um, which was actually nominated for, uh, 
by uh, our patients as well as the caregivers of our patients. And uh, certainly it's a recognition of our team as a whole, uh, providing a very essentially holistic care in terms of thoracic oncology. And, you know, I think each of us as academics, we've received or we may have received various awards or grants from, you know, academic institutions or even different philanthropic organizations. But having this recognition by the patients and their caregivers, and there were actually, if I remember correctly, one or two patients, caregivers whose family members have actually passed away by the time they were nominating for us. So it was something that they remembered trying to establish and keep the legacy of uh, the patient going and then therefore nominating us. I think that that was truly phenomenal. And actually, most of these patients were also patients involved in our clinical trials. So I think it's sort of an endorsement of uh, us as clinicians, as well as as investigators, uh, trying to improve the outcomes uh, of of our patients as well as their families. Herbert, I remember the the team picture that meeting uh, and, you know, it's you up front with Tony Mock. Is Tony as sharp dressed in clinic as he is on the podium? <laughs> oh, well, how should I answer this in a politically correct way? He is. Uh, but certainly <laughs> with the current uh, COVID-19 situation, we are a bit more cautious about what we're wearing at work, certainly. Um, so, you know, he, he has he's wearing his scrubs, uh, but at the same time, he still manages to carry the scrubs in a much more fashionable uh, manner than any of us. <laughs> Now, speaking of the the WCLC, we just finished our first virtual uh, world conference on lung cancer. Uh, a lot of us miss being in person for that meeting. To close here, can you share a, a WCLC that was memorable for you? Yeah, I think the WCLC that was most memorable for me certainly was the one in Toronto. Uh, that was, of course, in uh, 2018, um, mainly because of the fact that that was the year when we were awarded the uh, IASLC uh, Cancer Care Team Award. Uh, at the same time, it also brought me back to Toronto, where I did my fellowship training, and it seemed to have essentially bring me back to a full circle in terms of where my roots were, and uh, going back to where I trained, and then be able to, you know, receive on behalf of my colleagues the award and the recognition. At the same time, I believe that was one of the years where I actually had a presentation orally. And in subsequent years, I was able to participate more uh, in various WCLC conferences with oral presentations, as well as um, abstract discussions and having original abstracts as well. And um, I think being involved in the IASLC community uh, throughout these last couple of years have been extremely rewarding. Well, I think if the the meeting goes back to Toronto or if it's in Hong Kong, a tip for our listeners is really to try to seek you out for restaurant recommendations. (laughs) Uh, You always seem to know exactly where to go. You know, wrapping up this this episode, I want to thank you, Herbert, for your time, for your insights, all the great work you're doing. Uh, I'd also like to thank the audience for listening. Don't forget to like the podcast, share it with your colleagues and friends. Stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 